Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Excuse my froggy voice today. Uh, today is Friday, November 18th, 2022. It's a little after five o'clock, a little after one o'clock uh, in the afternoon here on the East Coast of the United States. My guest today is no stranger to the Judging Freedom audience, Jeff Deist, longtime personal friend of mine, but even more importantly, the president of the Mises Institute uh, in Auburn, Alabama, probably the finest uh, academic think tank for libertarian Austrian economics, uh, freedom, peace, and anti-war views from an academic point of view anywhere in the United States. Full disclosure, I am on the board of the Mises Institute. I'm there because I love it, and I agree with its incredible mission. Jeff, it's a pleasure. Welcome here, my friend. Yeah, this is our second meeting this week. Right, right. I, people will think I'm crazy. I flew to Atlanta and then drove two hours and met you and our friend uh, Lou Rockwell, and then drove two hours back, and then flew from Atlanta to Newark. It was a long day, but it was well worth it. So it's it's a pleasure uh, to see you, my dear friend. Uh, what is your uh, opinion of the uh, newly emerging uh, Republican majority in the House of Representatives? Should libertarians be rejoicing that there's a backstop on what Joe Biden uh, wants to do in one of the two houses of the Congress, or are they just going to cut some deals, get more money for defense, and then let Joe do whatever else he wants? Well, I can't say I'm optimistic. I know we're talking about the House primarily, but over on the Senate side, Mitch McConnell said, hey, let's talk about what's between the 40-yard lines that we can agree on. So that's the last thing I want to hear coming out of Washington is more of the same. But you know, when I look at the Republican Party, and I do not consider myself a member of that party, uh, nor a voter for that party, but nonetheless, as an outsider, take that for what it's worth. I mean, we know what the Democrats are. They are the party of government, of socialism, of wealth redistributionism, of woke, of a, an insane energy perspective of an insane perspective on education. They are the party of taxes and socialism and basically denial of reality. Let me just stop you right here. And they're open and honest about it. They're they open don't and honest it. about it. They're crazy lefties, but they acknowledge this is what we're going to do. And when they get in power, they do it. Go ahead. Correct. So the Democrats are serious. The Republicans are not. Now, the Republicans could craft a message which was something other than simply reactionary to all the things I just mentioned. In, in other words, they could craft a positive message. They might not mean it, but politics is not always about telling the truth. But nonetheless, they could at least craft a message of capitalism, of opportunity, of ownership, of limited government, of the idea that average people ought to be able to improve their lot in life through education, 
uh, through capital accumulation, through investment and savings, and actually owning property, actually owning a piece of the stock market. Uh, you know, they could craft an opportunity message, but they don't. They tend to craft a message that is entirely reactionary and responding to what the left is doing. So as we saw in the midterm, it's not enough to just say we're not them. They need something more. You know, you used a phrase, uh, Jeff, uh, which we both love, but which with the exception of Thomas Massey in the House and Rand Paul in the Senate and your former boss and our dear friend Ron Paul, you never hear it today. You're certainly not going to hear it from the Democrats. You don't even hear it from the government. And that is limited government. I mean, the government grows, but this is this is not even to be disputed. The government grows in leaps and bounds, no matter which party is in power. I can't imagine yes. Kevin McCarthy announcing on January 3rd, we're the party of, uh, of uh, limited government and we're going to dial back uh, the government. I mean, if he did that, I don't think he'd be the Speaker of the House. Those House members that uh, are about to elect him the Speaker want to be able to bring home bacon. And you don't bring home bacon when you have limited government. Well, I think it really comes back to us, to the to the American public. In other words, in, in our view, there are whole spheres of human life which ought to be outside the bounds of politics. Yes. That ought to be dealt with socially, economically, amongst families, uh, civilizational matters. Politics ought to be a small part of our lives. And I like the great Jim Grant, who was at our recent 40th anniversary thing. He said, you know, what if every time you woke up in the morning and you were talking about last night's ball game, all you talked about was the umpires, <laughs> right? I, I mean, that's, in other words, what was supposed to be a night watchman or a referee in society, meaning the federal government, and we can get into federal versus state, but the federal government was supposed to be a tiny part of American life, it has become an active player in the game, a, a player that determines outcomes, that picks winners and losers. And the result of that, because of the federal government's growth throughout the 20th century, both on the executive side, the unitary executive, and mind you, conservatives were bad on this too, but also in the entitlement state, you know, the New Deal, the Great Society programs. Uh, as a result of all that, the, the U.S. federal government has become such a leviathan that politics, federal national politics, becomes this insanely important zero-sum death match. In other words, we have to care about who's a senator in some other state uh, mm -hmm. that we don't live in precisely because we have uh, granted to them, you know, authority wildly beyond their constitutional boundaries. So th this is where we are. The federal government is the only game in town at this point. As uh, aggravated uh, as libertarians were, uh, over the lockdowns for COVID, you saw a little bit of brightness in that uh, on the part of governors like uh, Ron DeSantis, mm -hmm. uh, who resisted lockdowns, who basically told the feds to go take a hike and stay out of Florida. I mean, is well, that is that a trend? Is federalism going to come back? I mean, in your lifetime and mine, but go back to the dreaded Woodrow Wilson, the power has always flowed to the feds. Will we mm -hmm. see? Can we see? How can we create a reverse so that power flows to states and localities or to the original source of power, which is the sovereign individual? Well, the whole history of the 20th century in politics is one of political centralization across the West. 
uh, authority that used to reside locally went to states, went, went to the national government, and increasingly went to supranational bodies. So the most interesting political question for me in the 21st century is no longer capitalism versus socialism, which was the fundamental question of the 20th century and which was decided basically in favor of socialism, although in the West it's been moderated into social democracy. So the, the question for me in the 21st century is who decides and where? That, that's the far more interesting question. I don't think we can save ourselves from progressives simply by trying to persuade them any longer. I think people are pretty dug in uh, at this point. So it really is a question of whether aggressive federalism or even some degree of outright secession could ever take place in the United States. It's an interesting question. I don't think progressives have any reason to allow it because from their perspective, they're winning. Why right. would they yield an inch? But, but nonetheless, they have been dealt a few body blows in recent years. Trump was a body blow to the progressive sense of inevitability. Brexit was a body blow to the European uh, sense of progressive or globalist uh, inevitability. So when they start to realize that these deplorables uh, are living longer than they imagined, there's more of them than they thought, you know, maybe that is the impetus for getting states to start looking at each other and say, hey, look, there's a, there's a better way to do this. If, if nothing else on the so-called social issues, we could immediately ha have a much greater degree of social cohesion in this country if we simply stopped looking to the Supreme Court to decide things like guns and abortion. So uh, our uh, defense budget is now about $780 billion a year. That is more than the next 12 nations combined, which of course includes Russia and uh, China. Um, the American foreign policy has been based upon the hubris of, we know what's better for other countries and we're going to expand uh, American empire because we're good and we're going to spread democracy. This has been an abysmal failure. Uh, it has cost trillions. It has lost millions of lives. How do we stop that? Republicans are even more for that than Democrats. I'm thinking of George W. as an example. Yeah, it really is something how uh, we spend so much more than the rest of the world. I would argue that that 700-something billion figure is actually closer to a trillion when we factor in a lot of stuff in the U.S. federal budget that, that runs under the State Department or aid that, that flows through supplemental bills, which are not directly going to DOD itself. The, but the, here, the, here, in, the intelligence community, the CIA intelligence has community, its own army, right. NSA, et cetera. But here, here's the thing. Pretty soon, the biggest line item in the federal budget for Congress every year is going to be interest on the national debt. Yes. Uh, interest rates on treasury debt just in the historically average range of, let's say, 5 to 7 percent are going to buy, let's say, the next three to five years are going to make interest payments alone higher than Social Security, Medicare or defense, which have always been the big three. So uh, regardless of where you stand on that uh, ideologically, regardless of where you stand on that, you know, strategically, whether you're neoconservative, whether you are the biggest bleeding heart, anti-war pacifist on earth, uh, regardless, we, we can't afford it. And maybe well, there's that's no, what there's it's going to no take. Way, there's no way around it unless the federal government goes out of business and defaults like the Soviet Union did. And maybe that's not such a bad idea. Where are we going to come up with $31 trillion, which is what we owe today? It'll be $32 trillion a year from now, Jeff. And as you're right, with the interest rates going up, 
more than one third of what the feds collect uh, in revenue from income taxes and other sources, more than one third will be going to interest payments. Well, and beyond that, the U.S. government doesn't account for its books, its liabilities in the same way that public companies are required to under GAAP accounting. The federal government has made promises to an awful lot of people uh, that they're going to receive Social Security and Medicare checks in the future. Those promises are, are in no way represented in that $30 trillion number. So the real number, the real gap between what we're likely to bring in under reasonably rosy scenarios of future tax revenues versus what we're likely to spend uh, on Social Security and Medicare recipients, that gap over the next, let's say, 30 to 50 years is more like $200 trillion. Wow. So 30 is the nice, the nice number, folks. Right. So when you talk about defaulting, the U.S. government is already in a slow default. In other words, you might be paid nominally, but in, in real terms, this debt is unpayable. The whole world knows it. It's just a matter of, of when that will be reflected in the treasury market. And at some point, I would argue, this is an opinion, that to get anybody to invest in Uncle Sam, this dysfunctional fiscal house is going to require junk bond rates, not 3%. Right, right. So we have a lot of, uh, Judging Freedom has a lot of uh, tech-savvy viewers. So let's, let's go to their field for a few minutes. I'm not, you are, a lot of people watching us uh, are. Is the digitization of society centralizing or decentralizing? Wow, it's both. Because all of this new technology available to us is also available to governments. Uh, a central bank digital currency is a very, very frightening uh, oh, idea with dreadful. respect to privacy because as, as Neil Kashkari at the Fed openly points out, he says, look, what this would allow is for the government to track all of your transactions, literally everything you buy. Second, to tax any of them, either in terms of taxing the net worth in your account or to tax the transaction itself. And finally, to impose negative interest rates on your account if we're trying to force people to go out there and spend money. So there's nothing good about a central bank digital currency. And let's hope that these insane people who were running this FTX gambit yeah. uh, don't end up causing a bunch of pretty elderly congressmen and senators on the House uh, Financial Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee to come up with an entirely new regulatory framework, which oh, is going to squeeze us. So uh, if you look at a dollar bill, it famously says on it, this is legal tender for all debts, public and private. In the New York City area, if you go across a bridge, the George Washington Bridge from New Jersey to New York, if you go under the Hudson River, the Lincoln Tunnel or the Holland Tunnel, uh, if you go to park at any of the three major uh, airports, JFK, LaGuardia and Newark Liberty, you can't use cash. You can't use cash. And you can't use your uh, your credit card. They will take a picture of your license plate and send you a bill. So the dollar is not uh, currency for all debts, public and private, when the government itself won't accept it. You can't make this well, up, Jim. If Times Square still had hookers and drug dealers, I guess you could go spend your cash there. But I think they're gone, too. Yes. Yes, they are. By the way, while we're talking about Times Square, I, I know we didn't plan on talking about guns. Times Square is seven square blocks, as you know. You and I have been there. 
uh, in the middle uh, of Manhattan when Governor Hochul's people enacted the so-called right to carry law. They said you can't carry uh, in Times Square because it's too crowded and too jammed mm-hmm. and somebody could take your gun from you, wouldn't know it. Except they expanded it from seven square blocks to 35 square blocks, to areas that no New Yorker in his or her right mind would consider uh, to be Times Square. But you see where my finger is? Mm-hmm. That's the northeast tip of this 35 uh, block region. What's right there? The Fox Building. The Fox Building. If you're an employee of Fox and you have the right to carry, you can't carry that gun to work. I think this will be uh, invalidated, but I, I couldn't I, I couldn't resist mentioning that when we're talking about when we're talking about Times Square. When when you wrote back in January, how we will win. And again, you have spoken about this and you and I have talked about it. What did you mean? Who's we and what is winning? I think winning is almost by default. I, I, you know, I think truth and beauty are inextricably linked. I don't think you can have one without the other. And I think the idea that human beings want to be free at the end of the day is pretty ineradicable. We find that even in the worst conditions of concentration camps or prisons where you could say government has reached its full and final uh, position. Um, you find even people being shot or executed still clinging to freedom right up to the end. So I don't think it's something that's so easily snuffed out like a candle. So given that, uh, the, the only question for me is to look back at history, at periods of human history, and say that we don't have the right to be down in the dumps. We don't have the right to be crybabies about this because a lot of our ancestors and previous generations had it much tougher than we did in material right. terms. So if we think something is unjust, well, while we're fighting that injustice, uh, you know, we're not literally starving. We're not literally being beaten or imprisoned or shot okay, at for but, the moment. What is, what so is winning? To, to me, winning would be starving the government. I, I think winning is when Atlas shrugs and when government simply ceases to be able to operate under the, the terms it set for itself. And I think that's what happened in the Soviet Union without a violent revolution. Yes. In other words, government just simply can't do the things it purports to do, uh, you know, pay vast entitlements, remake Afghanistan into some sort of Jeffersonian democracy, all these big things. But, at the, you know, at the end of the day, they can't even fix a pothole or keep a bodega safe. I think that's when Atlas shrugs. And so maybe we don't win ideologically so much as we win mechanically. Jeff Deist from the uh, Mises Institute. It's always a pleasure. Well, you'll see my shine, my smiling face at your office door one of these days. This next time, I'm, I'm not going to give you a heads up. <laughs> All right. All the best. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Judge. Judge Napolitano for Judging Freedom. 